Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. So, this week we arrive at Psalm 27, and um, this again is a psalm of David, and let us hear the word of God, which is eternally true. Psalm 27, a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So David begins this psalm, this prayer, with the statement, the declaration of his faith, the Lord is my light. I keep, uh, I keep saying that I read Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, in preparation to preach. And uh, last night on the way home for the, mo- for the wedding that uh, some of us were invited to, not all of you, I was only there because I was one of the officiants. And so they had to have me there. Anyhow, on the way home last night, I listened to Spurgeon's commentary on this. And it's very interesting that immediately at the beginning of this, uh, his comments on this psalm, He doesn't talk about light, but he talks about darkness, which kind of seems weird, you know. (coughs) If some evangelical or some celebrity were to preach on this today, they would never start with darkness. They'd start with light. But what Spurgeon says is that until God shines his light on us, we don't know that we're dark. 
We don't know our sin. We don't know our hearts. We don't know how far and hopeless, how far away from God and how hopeless we are. And so the first thing that Spurgeon comments on is the fact that God's light is necessary for us to see our darkness. Okay? Now, why would we want to see our darkness? You know, if our wife comes to us and points out our darkness, generally we're not real receptive. Less so when our son shows us our darkness or our daughter, our mother or our father. If a pastor shows darkness to another pastor, an elder to a pastor, a pastor to a... Generally, we're not real receptive to having somebody show us our darkness. But the good thing is that when God shows us our darkness, we don't have to be worried about his motivation. Because his motivation is love. And listen, it is a precious thing to see your darkness. Because nobody ever flees to Christ who hasn't first seen their darkness. There's nothing that makes us desire God until we see our darkness. And this is the reason why when now that I'm the age I am and I, people that don't know me think I have dignity, um, I sometimes am given respect and a certain candor by people who are older than I am and who are very dignified. It's happened a couple of times recently where I have met with men who were completely honorable Bright, articulate, well-dressed, well-spoken, and a well-lived life. And the fascinating thing about it is when you get done meeting with them, what you think is there is no darkness. You ever been around people like that? Where you sit there and think, I know I'm saved by Jesus, but I don't think they're saved by Jesus. And you're not making any judgment of them except positively. You're thinking, I don't think they need Jesus' blood because they've just sat there for an hour telling you they don't need Jesus' blood. You know, they've spent an hour telling you all the things they've done in their life, and they're very sophisticated in the way they do it. You know, they're not gauche. You know, they're very, very proper in explaining to you that the world is in their debt. That they've lived an honorable life. And these are people who are not able to say, the Lord is my light. They are their own light. You know the people I'm talking about, right? And this is Jesus saying, I have not come for the righteous, but for the sinners. So often people who have a terrible sin will, will in shame, talk to me about their sin, and, and they'll just be all bound up in the horror of the sin of their heart, and I'm sitting there being very happy because I know that this is what will make them love Jesus. 
And so the highest privilege pastors have is not when some mother announces to the pastor that her child is indeed as perfect as everybody thinks her child is, (laughs) you know. The high point of a pastor's life is when someone confesses their sin. Because the only thing that causes that to happen is when the Lord is their light. And that light begins by shining in our hearts in such a way that we are utterly revulsed at who we are. Okay? And then we begin to get it. Not as the world gets it, but as the holy God gets it. That there is no hope for us. The Lord is my light. And this is a confession, not just of the Lord being light, but of David being darkness. David doesn't say, I am light. You know, when I was in the PCUSA, oh, oh, oh. I said to one man this week who's in the PCUSA, I said, it's a hellhole. It is utterly a hellhole. There are godly people there. My father, I remember, used to go around speaking in the PCUSA when he was alive 35 years ago. And I remember him saying to me that in every PCUSA church, there is a godly woman. And there are godly uh, pastors in the PCUSA, but uh, the leadership is awful. And so we would go to general assemblies and we would testify. They, they said that abortion, quote, can be an act of faithfulness before God. Okay, that's a direct quote from their document. And then they would get up and they would promote homosexuality. Well, I love homosexuals, and I know it's no blessing to them for them to have sex with somebody of the same sex. And it's because I love them, and I know everybody that tells you that's wonderful doesn't know or love any homosexuals. All right? You know, just like the guy that tells you that to commit adultery is wonderful. And I've had a man tell me that God told him to commit adultery. And, you know, I loved him, and so I told him, actually, no. You know, we say that to guys that are into fornication and pornography, you know. And so here is a church whose leadership say that abortion can be an act of faithfulness before God and who commend sodomy and lesbianism, all right? And of course, the people leading in in this are pastors. We're going to get back to this in a few minutes. So it's pastors who are telling their people that their abortion is not sin, and so they shouldn't repent, and that lesbianism is sin, so they shouldn't repent, and that sodomy is sin, they shouldn't repent. In other words, the pastors are the advocates of not repenting. All right. And so what did they call their organization in the denomination of the PCUSA that promoted lesbianism and sodomy? What did they call it? They called it more light. Okay? More light. And these are people who don't know their darkness. And so who opposes them? Well, the people that oppose them are people that know their own darkness. Not people who know their darkness. People who know our own darkness. And because we know our sin, we have faith and hope for God healing every sinner there is, because there ain't no sin that we haven't committed, right? 
God's church is filled with sinners. This is why Jesus said he came for sinners. He didn't come for the righteous. The righteous are hopeless. Those people who, who dig their own cistern, you remember this in the Old Testament, that they dug their own cisterns, those people who make their own water and make their own light, all right, who go around talking about being the light of the world themselves, who talk about being enlightened anytime anybody says that, th- that they're enlightened or somebody else is enlightened, you know it's darkness. David does not point to himself, to his family, to the university he went to, to the professor he had in seminary, <laughs> as the source of light in his life. David says, the Lord is my light. David doesn't say the Lord is the light. David says the Lord is my light. It's a very personal statement, and you'll see this all through the Psalms, that David is very direct, very manly, very forthright in his statement of what it is that matters to him, what he clings to. The Lord is my light. Now, Jesus came into this world to be the light of the world, right? You know he said that, I am the light of the world. John, in John chapter 1, talks about this, right? John talks about Jesus coming to this sinful world, this dark world. And John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John says, in him was what? Life, and that life was what? The light of men. The light of men. The light of men is not Indiana University. Indiana University is dark. It's dark morally, it's dark intellectually. Not so much truth. I'm not saying there isn't truth, but I'm saying if you were to sum up universities and colleges and seminaries in the world today, is that the place that there's light? Honestly? No. Why? Well, because pride can't be separated from higher education. And pride is never light. Pride is always darkness. So we live in a community where the light is supposedly emanating from the east side to the west side and darkness from the west side to the east side. You know, right? You know this. Told me about five years ago, he absolutely abhors going to the east side of Bloomington because he hates the light. Well, that's a joke. The reason he hates to go to the east side is because of the super arrogating pride, the super... That's not the word. The super emanating, the super suffix, the stultifying pride. It's overwhelming when you go to the east side, right? You've all realized this, right? Why? Well, because the university is the place where the experts who are going to be on national public radio are going to tell you the truth. It is, it is an absolute foundational commitment of the world today that the Lord is not the light. The Lord is darkness and his people are dark. 
your attitudes about homosexuals, every public school teacher will tell you, your attitude as a Christian is darkness. And so you get on Facebook and you call people who are adulterers, all right, people who are fornicators, people that are into pornography, people that are into homosexuality, you call them to repent, and everybody says you're dark. You know, they, they shame you, they, they, they tell you that you are in a prison of your own religious prejudice, that you're a hater, on and on and on. That's what the world means by darkness. That's darkness, okay? And so you have to make a decision today. Where is the light? So John goes on, he says the life was the light of men. So Jesus is the light of men, right? And then what does he say? He says the light shineth in the darkness, that's us, and the darkness does not comprehend it. When Jesus came, the intellectuals of his time killed him. At that time, the intellectuals and the church were one, and it's largely the same today. You know, probably the highest value in the conservative reform church is on the intellect, right? And so the Pharisees were the conservative Christians of Jesus' time. And who killed Jesus? They never stopped plotting his death. The light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't comprehend it. He came to his own, but his own wouldn't receive him. David says, the Lord is my light. Let me tell all of you, you can't have two sources of light. And later, David is going to say, one thing I've desired. We have to be single-minded in declaring our commitment publicly and in trusting privately in the light of the world, who is Jesus Christ. The world is never going to stop telling you that it has a separate light, which is more light than Jesus. Okay? You remember when the Apostle Paul talks in 1 Corinthians about the sins that will keep us from heaven. And he lists a whole bunch of sins. In there is, is effeminacy and homosexuality. And he says at the beginning and at the end, he says, do not be fooled. <laughs> now, why did he say don't be fooled when he said homosexuality would keep you out of heaven? Because in the time of Christ, the world was saying homosexuality would not bar you from the kingdom of heaven. And so Paul thought it was good to say, homosexuality will bar you from the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, don't be fooled, right? Contesting lights, the, the light of the enlightenment, ground zero of the university, public school system. I'm not saying there aren't Christians at university. We have a number of them here. But public, I'm not saying there aren't public school teachers who aren't Christians. I'm not saying that there aren't lights in the public school system, and their light is Jesus. What I'm trying to get you to see is the light of Jesus Christ is exclusive. It does not need to be burnished by the Enlightenment. And where there is a claim that there's more light, that more light is always going to be a usurper against the light of Jesus Christ. Okay. 
the Lord, says David, is my light and my salvation. So apparently David is dark and he needs to be saved. He doesn't say my salvation because he's sort of self-sufficient and he's, you know, confident in himself. (laughs) You don't need to be saved if you're self-confident, right? Right? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Well, that question is the answer. I don't fear anyone. The Lord is the defense of my life. So in other words, David apparently has enemies, right? You don't need a defense if you don't have enemies. Spurgeon at this point says it's very important that we have the right enemies. What a comfort that David had enemies who were the wicked, evildoers. See, in verse 2, when evildoers. So David's enemies were evildoers. Now, do you have enemies? In the first service, I was just categorical in saying, if we don't have enemies, how can we claim to be serving God? But then I got thinking, and I thought, you know, there are some people who are blessed by God with a non-public life. And their life is set up in such a way that they're not at the front of the line. And so, yes, there are people here who are godly. For instance, young children. They're not at the point where their life is public enough that the wicked have access to them, right? But listen, those of you who are adults, those of you who live in this world, it is extremely important that you have enemies. If you don't have enemies, then somehow you have found a way of living in this evil world more effectively than Jesus. (laughs) Not to put too fine a point on it. You know, do you really think that you're a better representation of the kindness of God than Jesus was? Isn't it amazing how many people think that about themselves? You know, I have finally arrived at a point where I think I'm an accurate representation of what I wish God were like. (laughs) At the church I used to serve, there were tons of administrators and faculty members from Indiana University. And I spent a lot of time with them. And the thing that boggled my mind was none of them had any enemies. I could not figure out how they had found that sweet spot where you could have the Lord as your light and salvation and have no enemies at Indiana University. You know, how is it that we live today without any enemies? I'm not talking about having to have the enemies on the level David did. I mean, if you're if your debutante ball is with Goliath and the women sing, you know, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands, you know, probably that's the kind of guy that's going to have enemies that want to eat him. You know what I'm saying? But all of us should have enemies that are on a level that we live our lives. All of us should know that there are people who hate us because they hate our master. 
And that's the second thing. Not only should we have enemies, but we should have enemies who are wicked. Our enemies shouldn't be the righteous, and our enemies should not be petty. We shouldn't have enemies because we make a you-know-what of ourselves. And yes, that's Tim Bailey saying this. (laughs) Come on, you can laugh. You know that I have enemies because I make a you-know-what of myself. That doesn't count. We have to have enemies. They have to be our enemies because of God, and they need to be the wicked. Now, I guarantee you that many of you have family members that should be your enemy who are not, and you have failed. I think if I were to say what is one of the most frequent things that we have to do in in serving as your shepherds, it is exhorting you to have the faith to have family members your enemies. Does this make sense to you? Jesus was very clear about this. He said he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And then he talked about having to hate your father and mother, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter, your husband, your wife. And he wasn't meaning that you had to go around hating them. What he meant was that he had to be so much higher in your love and devotion and commitment that by comparison, you hate your own wife. Okay? Don't any of you think that marriage will be your panacea, your, 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 the solution to all your problems in life? <laughs> those of us who are older and married will tell you, uh, uh, not so much. And those of us who have wonderful marriages will tell you, it, it's not going to actually help much. We didn't say that in the, in the sermon yesterday, but those of us who are older knew it. You know, we knew that when they get up tomorrow morning, or this morning now, that they'd still be lonely, okay? Marriage is a beautiful thing. It's not good for the man to be alone. But Jesus will brook no competitors. You know that I wrote a book on fatherhood, and probably the part of that book that I enjoyed writing the most was the section on the jealousy of God. Because American Christians don't get it. God is jealous. God will not stand competitors for his place in our heart. He will not do it. Do you understand this? And many of you have put your children, your wife, your husband, your parents in the place of God, and you have more of a commitment to your family members than you have to God. God will not stand that. And so, many of you, I would say to you, if you want to know where your enemies should be, look at your own family. And be willing, by faith, to be hated in your own home. Not because you make yourself a you-know-what, but rather because you honor Jesus Christ. Okay? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread when evildoers came upon me? And it's very interesting here. Evildoers came upon me to do what? Any of you know the Donner Party? You realize that the evildoers want to eat us. They're not content with tripping us. They're not content with killing us. They want to eat us. 
devour my flesh. My adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. And why did they stumble and fall? They stumble and fall because God is protecting us. Every Christian stumbles and falls. You know that this morning when you got up, immediately you sinned. And then you sinned again. And so we do stumble. But God assures us that our enemies, his enemies, will not just stumble, they'll fall. Okay? And that's what David says. Next, please. Next, please. Though a host encamp against me, it's just easier for me to do. I just figured this out in the first service. It's the same thing. (laughs) So if you want to see what I'm preaching from, look behind you. And if I want to see what you're reading... This is the way I preach like Edwards, Jonathan, who would just fix his sight on the back wall. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. So the enemy starts by setting up the tents and getting ready in camp. And then it says, though war arise against me, then the enemies come against you with their weapons. In spite of this, I shall be confident. David's not going to be shaken. And then he says, one thing I have asked from the Lord, and that I shall seek. Do you remember uh, what Jesus says? And I can never remember which woman it is. It has to be, I don't know, which one is it? Is it Mary or Martha? Who's the one that's busy about many things? Is that Martha? That's fascinating. That's why I can't remember it. Because my mother's name was Mary, but she's Martha. (laughs) Do you remember what Jesus said when Martha complained? Anyhow, you all know what I'm talking. When this one woman, who was the sister of this other woman, complained that the other woman was not helping her in the kitchen, all right, and Jesus said what? She has chosen the one thing necessary. And what was that thing? That thing was being devoted to Jesus. Single-minded, purposeful commitment. Do you remember I said, only one light, only one thing. David is completely focused on God. David is not focused on on truths about God. And it's not because David didn't know doctrine, but it's because in the final analysis, doctrine is only as good as our trust and our love for God. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that shall I seek. So he doesn't just ask, but then he gets to work, okay? All right? that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now, the house of the Lord then was the temple. There was one place for all of Israel, but here the house of the Lord is this place where the people of God worship God, and they eat his, his meal, and they are baptized into his family. They confess their sins. They listen to the preaching of his word. 
They pray for one another. They sing his praises. And David says, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's this house. I have had many, many times, as I said last week, people tell me that they, that they find God better in the woods hunting than they do in the church. And <clears throat> I, I never have any desire to respond to that because I know any man that says that is going to look at me as a merchant who's selling the shopkeeping of churchianity. So they look at me as proprietor. They look at this as a business. And they have no clue to understand why I would say to them, you don't know God in the woods. You know, I'm sure you're having a transcendent experience up there in the, you know, in the deer stand. But actually, it's not transcendent at all. Think of David. What kind of house did David have? What kind of relationship with nature did David have? Well, he was a shepherd. You read his psalms and you read about his intimate knowledge of nature, of the night sky, of everything beautiful. You read about his tenderness at the end of the next chapter of uh, Psalm 28. He says, you know, be my shepherd and carry me forever. This is a man who understands not just the beauty of nature, but the beauty of the shepherd-sheep relationship. And he wants to be God's sheep and he wants God to carry him forever, right? Okay, David understood everything that the zoologists and the entomologists and all the ologists in the world understand. I'm fearfully and wonderfully named. David understood what the physicians know. David had an unbelievable palace. David had unbelievable gifts musically. David was a warrior. David knew how to wield a sword. He didn't need to be... Uh, he didn't need to be a poser who watched... J.R.R. Tolkien movies. <laughs> you know, David didn't need to get his blood off the screen. He knew what courage and faith. He knew how to wield a sword and how to wield a slingshot. In other words, look, if there was anybody in this world that had every single understanding of beauty, of truth, who had wealth, who had food, who had Everything he could want in his own palace, it was David. And so the question is, why did David bother leaving his palace? Why did David want the house of God? I remember in high school, my father got an invitation. He thought it was to go preach at the White House. Actually, it wasn't to preach. It was to go there for worship. He was going to be one of some group of people that were invited to join the president in worship. This was President Nixon, all right? And my father accepted because he thought he was going to get to preach, and he was going to do a number on Nixon. And then he found out that actually somebody else was going to preach, so he didn't go. Now, think about that. If you were Donald Trump or President Nixon, why on earth would you stay in the White House Sunday morning? If I was the president, I would live for Sunday morning. I would live for the people of God, where it didn't matter who I was. And I was able to be among the people of God, confessing my sins, being exhorted and rebuked and encouraged with great 
patience. And I was led by musicians who demanded that I lift up my voice in praise. David had much more than anything you'd get on Pennsylvania Avenue in D.C. And David says this. He says he wants to dwell. This is the only thing he wants, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. And then he says to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Do you think of the Lord as being beautiful? I mean, honestly, come on. I mean, I don't, I don't think any man feels completely a man when he tells his wife she's beautiful. It just kind of feels sort of cloying and sort of cotton candy-ish. Dear, you're, you're beautiful. But then imagine speaking to God of being beautiful. Imagine saying to God, you are beautiful. I don't think any man thinks that way, right? And so David must have been a metrosexual to think that way about God, don't you think? What kind of a man would say, you're beautiful to God? So men, listen, press on through. There are truths of masculinity and manhood that you have no clue about. And that is that a real man cries and tells God he's beautiful. Do you know that at this point in his comments that Spurgeon, I think it's Spurgeon, he has a bunch of other people he quotes at the end, but I think it's Spurgeon who says that um, something to the effect that David, David, it's something like David lives for the kisses of God. Kisses. What we need to do is we need to recover biblical thinking, biblical living, biblical talking, and biblical uh, touch. And there's nothing embarrassing about David talking about beholding the beauty of the Lord. Because the Lord is beautiful. And if you don't know it yet, by God's grace, if you're a Christian, you will know it when you're in his presence. And you as a man will say, he is beautiful. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. So it's both what our eyes see and it's the thoughts of our mind when we meditate, when we think in his temple of his truths. There's an aspect of this that is... uh, impossible to have without being teachable. And so I want to say to all of you, you come to church not just to give the church what you have to give it, but to receive from the church what she has to give to you. Some of your meditations will come from looking at the young, at the old, from looking at women, from looking at men, from listening to women, from listening to men, because we do all present the beauty of the Lord to one another. But do not despise the preaching of the word. I don't care how smart you are and how much of the Bible you you know, you are to be teachable by your pastors. 
by your elders, by the older women of the church. You should come with your mouth open like a little bird. Because how much can you get of God before you're satiated? How much? Okay. And as I was thinking about preaching on this, who did I think of? Rita Cuffey. (laughs) This woman went to Boston Latin School. This woman was at Radcliffe. Then she had a graduate fellowship for a doctorate at Harvard in astronomy. Rita was no dummy. This woman worked for 18 years as secretary. In the, and when this woman worked there, and David was in a counseling session in the office, he kept his door open, as every godly man would, and he would call out, Rita, where does it say? And, and Rita would say, oh, I think that's, that's... And she'd open her Bible, and she not just knew where in the Bible it was, she knew which side of the page it was on and where in the call. That's how well Rita knew her Bible. She was brilliant, she was educated, and she knew her Bible inside and out. Okay? And when we would get together every week, almost always, Rita would ask me a question. It was absurd. So I'd go to my library and pull out books and read them to her. And I remember always thinking to myself, Rita could open books and read them, but there was something about Rita that absolutely loved having a shepherd who would teach her. And so she always wanted to be in the role of being instructed by her shepherd. It was just weird, you know? One of her favorite verses were, was, your, your teachers will not be removed from you. She'd write that out and, and give it to me. And I knew she was saying to me, I'm so glad that you haven't been taken from me. Listen, don't be above coming to the church and meditating on God's truth and being fed by the people of God. Don't, don't be above that. None of you, no matter how old you are and how intellectual you are, can get by without being instructed, okay? To meditate in his temple. Next. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. Very tender relationship between David and God. That God hides him and conceals him from his enemies. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies. So this is, again, what God does. God makes him stumble and fall. And then God lifts David up in such a way that he's above his enemies and he is able to look down on them. He, he will be lifted up above my enemies because God lifted him up and put him on a rock. Is that the metaphor that you use in your life to think about your relationship with God? <laughs> That's mine. Lifted, lifted me out of the pit and set my feet on a high rock, right? And I will offer in the tent sacrifices with murmurs and grunts and groans and whispers and I'll keep my hands down because stupid people are lifting their hands up. You're not laughing. I'm being facetious, tongue in cheek. Okay, why, why? I told you last week and I'm telling you again this week. Why will you not sing with gusto? I mean, I could name names here. I won't do it. I mean, honestly, why are you so murmuring 
and quiet and whispering in your worship. Why? I don't get it. You know? Why? Why? Why are you so worried that you'll, like, be too loud in worship? As a dear friend of mine went to be a pastor at an exceedingly wealthy and Presbyterian church. Exceedingly. In the South, as only such a church could be. And I remember that man coming back here. He and his wife used to be here. And I remember him saying to me that um, it just killed him that he could not get the people of God to praise God in song. You know, that they wouldn't sing. I mean, they sang, you know. They were civilized. They were, they were appropriate. But it just killed him as a musician that they would not forget themselves and give themselves to the praise of God. Look at what David says. David says what? I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. So is it that David somehow has less sense of propriety than you do? Okay, Michael. Remember Michael rebuked him for being carried away in the praise of God? Are you a Michael? I was talking to a Presbyterian, famous Presbyterian, a couple of years ago at a conference, and you know they were all talking about how you should be repressed and tuneful and four-part harmony and sophisticated and, and all of Western Christendom depended upon, you know, praising God musically in a way that Charles Webb would approve. Do you know who Charles Webb is? Ah, forget it. He don't matter. It's the first time that's ever been said in Bloomington. Well, he was the dean of the music school for five or six or seven generations. And so I went up and I said, you guys, what about David and Michael? And you know what they said? This is true. They said, well, Michael was right and David was wrong. That's what they said. That's, that's I won't tell you the name, but yeah, famous Presbyterian, you know. And then the guy next to him agreed. And I was left sort of, I felt like I was in an undercurrent in Lake Michigan drowning, you know? And I said, well, like, what about the childlessness? You know, where the Bible says she didn't have any kids. You know, isn't that a rebuke from God? I mean, you know, really? Michael was right and David was wrong. And then immediately they said, well, yeah, look at, look at David. He throws it in her face about how Saul is thrown over and he's the king. It's like, dude, listen, it says shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. And listen, I, every time I bring this up with you, I remind you what William Law says back in the 17th century in his classic, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. What he says is, if you go into the bar and get drunk, you'll sing. And so the problem isn't that you don't know how to sing. The problem is that you need to be liquored up to sing. But that's the definition of being 
under the influence of the Holy Spirit is that you're liquored up. Honestly. Because what liquor does is it takes away from you your self-awareness. And so you're able to give issue to what is in your heart. And how is it that the people of God have so little respect for the glory of God and so little desire for the Holy Spirit that we can't bring ourselves to lose ourselves in worship? How is that? Listen, if your father is repressed young men, forget your stupid father. And you teach him what it is to worship. Okay? All right. I will sing. I, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, now again, this is David's masculinity. Do you see it here? When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. <laughs> What's wrong with you people that teach your children not to obey until you count to ten? When you said, seek my face, I said, count to ten. And then I'll seek your face. Now, David is a man. You said, seek your face, I sought your face. You told me to do it, I did it. Bam, that's it. And then he says this, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. And that's very interesting, isn't it? Because immediately, as soon as he says, you told me to seek your face, and then he says, so I did it. Then he says, so don't hide your face from me. Listen, all of us are raising presumptuous children. Okay? I don't think it's cute. I don't like little children that come into the presence of adults that have dignity by virtue of their office, whether mother. I saw one young mother in our foyer this morning with her child treating her with disrespect. It is not good for us to be presumptuous when it comes to God, and if that's true, then we must remove presumption from our children towards us. That's how they learn how to approach God. David has just had God say to him, seek my face. He has said, I will obey your face, O Lord. I and then he pleads with God, do not hide your face from me. David is not presumptuous. David knows that God doesn't owe him his face. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. It's a benediction. It's a pleading of the pastor for you, of Aaron for you. Okay? Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me. There's no presumption here. He asks God not to hide his face, not to turn him away in anger, not to abandon him, and not to forsake him. That's David. And if David pleads with God... How much more should I and you? Listen, that kind of request of God does not demonstrate an absence of faith. It demonstrates the fear of God. The proper fear of God, knowing our place. Please teach your children to know their place. 
please teach them to know their place? Okay? Okay? All right. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. So the question is, did his parents really forsake him? And the answer is yes, because he said they did. But then the question is, did they forsake him because of their desire to not honor God and to honor their son? And likely the answer is that they forsook him in the way all parents forsake their children, which is when you're young, your children are needy and you have everything they need. Remember Jimmy Cuffey? When they get their first son home, and he's, he's a PhD from Harvard, and she was getting hers, and they put this little baby in the nursery, and Jimmy looks at the baby, and he looks at Rita, and he says, this, this little baby cannot do anything for himself. We're going to have to do everything for him. <laughs> this is one of the most hilarious things that I ever heard Jimmy say, you know. Brilliant! <laughs> you know, it had occurred to Jimmy that he was going to have to do everything for his baby, you know. <laughs> well, as we get older, our parents, our mothers and dads do leave us because we don't need them anymore because we've left and we're cleaving to somebody else. And then they die. Then they get... Um, they, they lose their intellectual capacity and they have to hunker down just to keep living. And all of a sudden, we're just not on their radar. And so that's probably what David's referring to here as his parents got older. They just didn't have his attention anymore. Okay, are you with me? But what point do we get at with God where God doesn't need to think about us anymore? Is there ever a point at which we're strong enough that God can hunker down and forget about us? No. We are little babies needing God to pick us up and carry us forever. Okay? So he never stops being our father and mother. The Lord will take me up, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I'm sorry, but I have to always make the point. Every single time you read about bloodthirstiness and violence in the Old Testament, I want you to remember abortion. I'm sorry. It is... It is, it is obscene. It is literally a mother devouring her child. It is exactly what we read about in the Old Testament in the times of famine, where the mothers would eat their children. This is what abortion is. And none of us want to face it because we want to think that we've evolved, that we're enlightened, that we're past the point of the sort of bloody existence of Old Testament people. But you have to understand, every, every, every sin of Scripture has always been present, and it always will be present. Homosexuality is boring to the Apostle Paul and Jesus. It was everywhere. In ancient Greece and Rome, everywhere. You know, remember me telling you of the first 14 Roman emperors, only one was exclusively heterosexual. 
Okay? Historians know this. This is in Gibbons, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. You know? And so bloodshed has always been routine. And it's the wicked who do it. It is not the righteous who slaughter their unborn children. And now it's, it's 50% of it is by chemicals. Right? And so it's getting more private. It's blood and it's slaughter and it's the wicked. Okay? Don't ever forget this. Don't ever be irritated by the people that try to remind you of this because they're being godly. And scripture is filled with warnings against those who are bloody and violent. That's what verse 12 says. Then verse 13, I would have despaired unless the Lord had, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In other words, you have to have your, your hope in front of you to keep from giving up. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. So, we should not be presumptuous, and we should not be precipitous. The word precipitous means taking action before we should, not being willing to wait, and so we take action, okay? Listen, God does not work in a precipitous way, and it does not help God for you to be precipitous. It does not help God for you to jump the gun. As, a, as an older brother-in-law of mine told me when I was a very young man, it's one of the most helpful things he ever told me. He said to me, God does not work through pressures, time pressures. We wait for the Lord, and waiting is the hardest thing we do as Americans, because I was on my way home from the wedding last night, and dude, there is a light on 67 right before Ameriplex. I swear, it does not have any of those rubber pads under the asphalt. And if it does, whatever computer they're attached to is ignorant. I could not believe how long I sat. Honestly, do any of you drive to Indy on 67? That intersection is mind-boggling. And I am an important man. (laughs) And I should not have to wait. But of course, with God, I'm completely different. Because it's God. You know, and so when it comes to God, I wait. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, buddy. Right? Do you remember what it says in Lamentations 3? It says, it's good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him what? Do you know what it says? Let him sit under it. Let him sit. How active is sitting? Bob has spent his entire life sitting, waiting on the Lord. It is Bob's greatest glory, and he has done it with grace. This is Bob. He has cerebral palsy. 
And he has sat and sat and sat and sat and sat. And David says, be strong and let your heart take courage. And then, yes, wait for the Lord. Isn't this interesting? Be strong, take courage. What's the matter with you, Bob? Be strong, take courage. (laughs) Yes, wait for the Lord. We're so impatient, we don't have any tolerance for God not giving us what we want now. Don't be precipitous, don't be presumptuous, and don't be precipitous. Wait for God. In his time, he will make everything beautiful. And so whatever it is you wait for, for some of you, it's the salvation and repentance of your children. For some of you, it's the healing of the wounds of your marriage. For some of you, it's waiting for a job that you actually like. For some of you, it's a home. For some of you, it's simply to see God. You be patient, you wait. God will give it to you. Whatever it is that you're waiting for. You don't know how God's gonna give it to you. I remember, uh, well I don't remember it actually, but when my brother Danny got leukemia at five, My parents were uh, not very old in the faith, and they read in James where it says, let him call for the elders and anoint him with oil, and, and the prayers will be heard. He'll be healed. And so they called some, some men together, and they anointed him with oil and prayed for Danny to be healed. And Danny was the Bailey boy that you would have liked. He was perfect. Uh, Christian writers and leaders who would come visit us in our home always said that Danny was, was an angel. Uh, nobody's ever said that <laughs> about me. And so they anointed him with oil and prayed, and they were absolutely certain he was healed. And so they went down, and, and the doctor was C. Everett Coop. They thanked the doctor because he was always our doctor. And then they went to the, to the uh, nurses and everybody that had worked with him in the hospital, the blood people, everybody, and they thanked them all and they said, we won't be needing you anymore because God has healed Danny. And so Danny came home and Danny went into remission and his remission lasted for one year. And then he died. And he died, dead, died. And they had given God their son. And they had made complete you-know-what of themselves to everyone. And Danny died. And my parents said they were never as sure of the love of God as when they walked away from the fresh grave of one of their children. My parents, I would say probably the greatest thing they did in their lives was they waited for the Lord. And so now my parents are in heaven as Danny healed. Yep. 
No tears, no sickness, the presence of the Lord. And so is this the opiate of the people? This is what Lenin said it was, right? Is this self-deception? No, it's not. There are many things that you're waiting for that you will not receive until you're in the presence of the Lord. Do not be precipitous and take matters in your own hands. Okay? Okay? You remember Saul took things into his own hands? You remember that? Sacrificing? The Israelites took things into their hands, own hands. You remember the Gibeonites? Scripture is filled with stories of people who are precipitous and act when they think God has forgotten them. God has not forgotten you. Wait on the Lord. Okay? Now we get to hear the song again, but this time we get to sing it. But let's pray before that happens, okay?